0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. Today, Dr. Peter Gao returns to Strange New Worlds to talk about two very important things. Number one, updates from JWST, how the Spaceborne Telescope has revolutionized our views of the cosmos, and how it's teaching us new things about exoplanets those real-life, strange new worlds out there. And two, recap the stunning, epic, brilliant, and iconic finale of Star Trek Picard season three. For those of you who don't know him, Peter is a staff scientist at the Carnegie Institution for Science's Earth and Planets Laboratory, studying exoplanets and their atmospheres. If those things sound familiar, That's also where I work and also what I study. Peter and I have been friends and colleagues for the past 11 years. Holy cow, that is ridiculous to say out loud. Anyway, we first bonded in graduate school at Caltech over what else but Star Trek. And in terms of this podcast, he's been here from the very beginning as our guest on episode one of Strange New Worlds and numerous times since it's always such a pleasure to welcome Peter back into the fold. Ready? Engage. So here we are on a sunny D.C. day, the day after the Star Trek Picard finale came out. Ew. And we actually just finished watching it like an hour ago.
1: Yep. In between much.
0: watching it and now we had to do group
1: meeting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. we talked about science a bit. A, a bit. <laughs> yeah, just a bit.
0: <laughs> actually, I wanted to start with science yeah. with you, Peter, because, I mean... Besides just being my friend, you're also my colleague. I really admire the science that you do. And you're doing some groundbreaking exploring of strange new worlds with this brand new telescope that we talked about over a year ago. Oh, goodness. JWST. (laughs) I know, time flies, right? Right. So, in the past year, you've actually made some pretty cool discoveries, or were a part of a very large team that helped do that. And I just want to talk about two molecules. CO2 and SO2, and, and have you tell us why these are such groundbreaking moments in exoplanet astronomy?
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, just who knew, like, these two little molecules that we have plenty of here on Earth, uh, some say maybe too many, not too much <laughs> of it. Uh, why, why would they be uh, such a big deal in exoplanet science? So the story uh, essentially goes back to last July uh, when JWST first started taking science observations after spending six months cruising from Earth to its current location at Lagrangian Point 2, unfolding like an origami, or I guess the opposite of origami. You don't want to, you, you <laughs> fold origami, you don't want to unvote it. Um, and uh, everything worked out well. It started taking science observations. And one of the first things it did was do the ERS observations. And ERS stands for Early Release Science. And this was a program that the powers that be for JWST decided to do at the very beginning. And so the ERS program observations are open in that as soon as they are taken, anyone in the world can access them and play with them and make scientific discoveries uh, as a way for scientists to really understand what this telescope is doing, how well it's doing, and how much science we can actually extract from it. So uh, the ERS program Uh, was actually split into many different topics. The galaxy people had their ERS program, the stellar people, I believe, had their own ERS program, the solar system people had their own ERS program, and the transiting exoplanet field had our own ERS program. And what's so great about this program is that it involved hundreds of exoplanet scientists really coming together as a community to look at this data. So this data specifically is of the hot Jupiter WASP-39b. Hot Jupiter, just for context, are giant planets like Jupiter, but orbit very close to their host stars. Uh, Jupiter orbits the sun in about 12 years. These things go around their stars in about three to four days. Uh, And so they're extreme objects, but because they orbit so close and they're so hot, they're actually the easiest to characterize and observe. And so we obtained observations of was 39 b specifically transmission spectroscopy, where we try to look at the light from their host star as filtered through their atmospheres on their way to us. And in doing so, we can pick up signatures of molecules, uh, molecular absorption of light from their atmospheres. And so we observed their transmission spectra across almost the entire wavelength accessible with JWSC. And that is a wavelength of about microns, which corresponds to roughly red light, to 5 microns, which is in the infrared. And the great thing about JWST is that it can capture this whole wavelength range continuously, and that was sort of the the big deal at the time, is that we are finally getting this continuous data product. And so that's really where the first discoveries came down. We observed this spectrum, and lo and behold, at around a wavelength of 4.3 microns, we see this giant bump. Boom, boom. Uh, we've never really had continuous spectroscopy at that wavelength. We had like a couple of points from other telescopes, the Spitzer Space Telescope in particular, which is a s- smaller infrared telescope. But with JWST, we were able to map out this entire region and find this giant bump. And what is it? Well, it's the telltale and unmistakable signature of carbon dioxide. Okay, So that was the first big discovery that with the first transmission spectrum of an exoplanet we found CO2 and we've never been able to find or confirm CO2 in any other exoplanet before then.
0: So besides just being the first time we've ever seen CO2, why is it remarkable that we found CO2? Why is CO2 such an important molecule?
1: Yeah, so this question has different answers depending on what kind of planet you're looking at. For giant planets, we believe their atmospheres are sourced directly from their natal protoplanetary disk. And so their atmospheres are primordial. What they started off with is what they have right now. And so the composition of these atmospheres really tell us about their formation environment. And it turns out the amount of CO2 in their atmospheres tells us how much quote-unquote metals they have in their atmosphere. And this is astro speak <laughs> For anything, for any element that's heavier than hydrogen and helium, which is... Most of the elements. All the geologists and, uh, are rolling their <laughs> eyes at us right now. They're all metals. They're all metals. <laughs> um, so what we learned from looking at CO2 for, for giant planets, for wasp 39 bs in this case, is that it has an elevated metal content in its atmosphere, about 10 times of that of its host star. And Could it be a Borg cube inside of it? <laughs> you know what? I think... Let me... Let me um, let me pitch that to the Nature uh, Journal. <laughs> I think they'll, they'll definitely pick that up. Extra metals in your gas <laughs> exactly, giant. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I wonder where that comes from. Guys, we'll talk about that later. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, continue. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, so we think that from our observations, it seems that this planet has about 10 times the metal content of its host star, and this can start to give us an idea of how these planets form. Now, what JWST can really help us do is not just give us this information for one planet. You can imagine for one planet, different things can happen. Maybe another planet impacted long ago and deposited all this carbon and oxygen in their atmospheres. So these stochastic events can happen for any particular single planet. But if we can do these observations for a whole host of planets, right? And we find what their metal content is, then we can start saying something about the population of these planets and how they form. And that's really the holy grail for giant planets. Now, this is really also preparation practice for when we try to detect CO2 or any other molecule on rocky planets and smaller planets in general. CO2 on a rocky planet will mean a whole lot. For one thing, we have a lot of CO2 on Venus. In fact, Venus's atmosphere is pretty much all CO2. The thin atmosphere of Mars is also basically all CO2. And if we are going out and we are start to see these, the CO2 peak on lots of rocky planets, then suddenly we seem to be, you know, it seems like we'll be living in a universe of Venus's, which is, uh, I don't know, I, I have to internalize that. I, think. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> what that would mean, but it seems either scary or probably kind of scary. Um, but really, this, I mean, you know, long story short, that first detection of CO2 really gave us an idea, a sense, you know, how, how good JWST really is that right out the gate, it made this big discovery.
0: Yeah, yeah, well maybe if we find all those Venuses out there, it's a universe full of Tholians. There we go, there <laughs> you go. There's a, there's a life finds a way. Well. <laughs> even more exciting, I think, than CO2, was SO2, sulfur dioxide. Now, people probably don't think very much about sulfur dioxide in their day-to-day lives, especially in comparison to CO2, which is, of course, responsible in large part for climate change here on Earth. So what is so special about finding sulfur dioxide on an exoplanet?
1: Yeah, so the story of how we found SO2, I think, is really interesting as well. So SO2 has, a small absorption feature at around 4.1 micron and remember i said earlier that the big giant co2 peak was at 4.3 micron so they're really close to each other and so when that first bit of data came down we saw this giant co2 peak a lot of people looked at it and it's like what is that thing that's right next to it what is that thing (laughs) is this just a problem with the data you know the data analysis did not go right you introduced a random bump in there But it quickly became clear that it was a robust detection of something. And Mm. so not only did that first bit of data tell us that this planet had a big giant CO2 peak, but also that there were surprises in the data that we did not really expect. right? And so that was a really fun time because all the theorists, all the modelers on the team who ran atmospheric models just perked up. Uh, and started just uh, tossing out wild ideas of what it could be. Maybe it was some kind of oxygen thing, maybe it was some kind of ion, maybe it was silicon, silicon oxide, and stuff like that, and so on and so on, until finally we hit upon SO2. And this is one of those times where theory and data really worked really well together because we had these models that took into account the process of photochemistry that turned out to predict Abundant SO2. In fact, an abundance of SO2 that fit the data perfectly. So, to go back a little bit, what is photochemistry? Photochemistry is the action of starlight and, in particular, high energy photons, ultraviolet photons, destroying various gases in the atmosphere, breaking them down into its consistent ions and, and radicals, which are like really reactive uh, bits of molecules and atoms, and these things then reacting to form new molecules. And so what we typically assume for these really hot atmospheres in particular is that their atmospheric chemistry is in equilibrium. All the composition is such that the entire atmospheric chemistry is in its sort of base state, the most energetically favorable state. And that is a fine assumption, usually at high temperatures, But it turns out that is not the case. When you introduce outside energy, outside forms of energy in terms of like ultraviolet photons, you can break up this equilibrium and introduce molecules or create new molecules essentially that these equilibrium models don't detect. And SO2 is one of those photochemically produced molecules. And so the big story from that discovery is that we finally for the first time discovered photochemistry on these giant exoplanets. Photochemistry is everywhere in the solar system. On every single planet in the solar system that has a significant atmosphere, there is ample photochemical products and and processes at work. The question has always been how easy it is to port our knowledge of the solar system to exoplanets. And it turns out, even at a thousand Kelvin, This is, uh, I don't know what that is in in, in Fahrenheit or Celsius or whatever. It's like 1,200 We do Kelvin here on this podcast. You you guys do
0: Kelvin. It's a Kelvin timeline podcast now. That's
1: right. That's right. That's right. So so 1,000 Kelvin totally makes sense. Uh, So 1,000 Kelvin is really hot. And usually at that temperature, we assume everything is in equilibrium and we're all happy and good. But it turns out we cannot. Uh, It's more complicated than we thought, which is typical of science. And that photochemistry is actually very important, not only in that planet, and actually going forward as well. Very cool,
0: Peter. Yeah, look forward to all of the next discoveries that you and the team make with JWST. We're in a brand new age of exoplanet astronomy, of getting to know these strange new worlds out there, 5,000 of which, and counting, that we know of. Uh, But I think we should switch gears now and spend the rest (laughs) of our time talking about this other big thing that happened, (laughs) which is the conclusion of Star Trek Picard. And the number one thing that I really wanted to ask you about. About was fatherhood. Oh, God. I feel like (laughs) this season was a lot of. Yes. You know, the theme was fatherhood. Yes. Jean-Luc finding out that he has a son, Geordi and his daughters, the relationships between them, you know, almost losing them to yes. the duties of Starfleet and then really losing them to the Borg. Uh, it's incredible for me to watch, but I can't relate to it on a personal level, mm-hmm. whereas you can because you are a father now. That's, Peter. Right. That's right. So how does being a father change the way you
1: watch Star Trek? So that... I love that that's your first question. Um, It completely changed it because you can suddenly relate to every single one of those scenes to an extent. I mean, I didn't find out, like, I had a lost kid or anything. (laughs) I was there when they were born. So, you know. Good, good. Um, But the idea, right, that your kid is suffering or they're lonely or they are, like, not sure of their place in the world. This is something that presumably I'll, I mean, my kids are still little. And so Mm -hmm. they're not quite at that age where they're. You know, aware of these things, (laughs) Um, but I can imagine that happening as they grow older and they get into society more and they think about what, what they want, who they want to be, who they want to love, right? And all these things where they could be confused because of what society is telling them. And certainly that is the case with Jack in this season, not being sure of who he is and eventually finding out like, oh my God, I have this deep, dark secret, this poison inside my brain basically. And I'll tell you, I mean, we just watched this together over here. I don't know if you noticed, but I was like... I was, like, basically crying.
0: I could, I could hear the heavy breaths.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, I, well, you can't see this, but I'm, like, covering my mouth, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, there was tears. Um, I think the moment that hit me the hardest, which, you know, I don't think is surprising, is when Picard was in sort of the, the Borg mine thing, and they were hugging, and it's like, I'll stay with you, and like, whatever what you want, I'll be here. You want to stay as a Borg? Fine, I'll stay here.
2: Then if you won't leave, I'll stay with you. Till the end. You have changed my life. Forever.
1: And, you know, now that I think about it, Picard did the one thing that he feared most, which is becoming Borg. Like, he basically tried to assimilate himself or to join his son. And, you know, that's something I think every father, or every parent, really, will think about, right? If one day, you know, God forbid, this never happens, you're in a position to essentially throw away your life for your kid, would you do it? And the answer for me is, yeah, of course. Maybe before, it's like, no, I, I got my life. I love it. Um, but I think, I mean, at least for me, the brain chemistry changes right away as soon as you see that baby, mm. you know, in the hospital. And he's like, oh, OK, well, I do anything for you. <laughs> yeah. this, is, this is just how the world is now. Right, right. right. And there's also this
0: balance between, you know, doing anything but then also like shielding them from, yes. and we saw this with Geordie, right, where yes. he was very much trying to shield his daughters from engaging in this very reckless, very <laughs> dangerous activity. But then learning to let them do exactly what he taught them to do by being the role model that he is of being this daring space adventurer, engineer, explorer, (laughs) and saving the galaxy. And that sort of tension between, oh yeah, that's what I would have done, but also I don't want you to do that because (laughs) you're my daughter.
1: I wonder what Jordy's parents thought about him when he was doing that. <laughs> now that I think about it. Um, you're absolutely right, right? Like, you, you, I think that's just a role reversal at that point that, you know, when you're the parent, you don't want anything to happen to your kid. And that's exactly what we did, actually, um, during COVID, during well, the height of COVID. I mean, COVID's still going on, but, mm-hmm. you know, During the height of COVID, uh, I was adamant that, you know, he stay away from people, you stay inside, especially at the very beginning where we didn't know what was going on. Like, stay indoors, don't talk to people, don't get close to people, wear a mask. And, I mean, I think for the most part, that was the right thing to do because, I mean, it was a freaking pandemic. For sure. Uh, But definitely there were times where, like, you know, he's not experiencing life. He's not experiencing anything. Uh, He's just, like, hanging out at home. And so, you know, slowly but surely, we introduce more outside activities, usually where there's no people, Mm -hmm. Uh, but still, right? Like he got to eventually live more of his life. And and these days, you know, he's out and about. He's talking to people all the time. He's gotten sick a gajillion times. (laughs) It's just, it is what it is. And you just have to slowly let them go and, and make their own decisions and make their own mistakes and just have them explore the world. And all you can do really is be there. Yeah, support them, right? You know, and if they if they need help, help them, and and that's your role at that point. They're their own person.
0: Yeah, it must be difficult to let them go. And maybe you know you'll you'll encounter this when they grow up and yeah. go to college or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, man,
1: <laughs> one day maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe.
0: I want to talk to you about Captain Liam Shaw. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> Tell, why? Me about, t- tell me about your feelings about this character from the moment you met him through the very bitter end.
1: Uh, I love the guy. I loved him the moment I saw him. First of all, Todd Stashwig is a god. Uh, <laughs> he is just so good. I, I think that's really why I loved him from the beginning. Is I can appreciate a good actor, no matter mm-hmm. how like annoying maybe his character or one's character could be, if they're a good performance, I love it. Right. Yep. And so as soon as he came on the scene, I was like, I don't care if you're Picard or Riker. What are you doing? You, you don't impress me. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, man, this guy's awesome. He's kicking ass. <laughs> and so uh, I loved him from the beginning. And I mean, from his point of view, these random captains and admirals just got on his ship and started to come commandeer. Like if, for example, it was Picard's ship. Right. And I don't know. And one of those bad came on board and was like, here, I'm going to take your ship to the writing system. It's like, yeah, we're going to be rooting for Picard, obviously. Like, right? Yeah, of yeah. course. And so yeah, I respected him for being, you know, being by the book, caring about his crew, and not taking shit mm-hmm. from legends, supposed legends. yeah, right. And so I really respect him. And then throughout the rest of the show, of course, he had a lot of excellent lines, just hilarious things. And of course, his performance, telling his life story at Wolf 359, I watched that several times. And it was masterful.
2: Now oh, come on! You must have heard about the Battle of Wolf Three Five Nine. Forty Federation starships up against one Borg cube. Yeah, I was just in engineering, just a, a grease monkey, and the next second, it's like, it's like space itself was burning. 50 of us made it down to the life deck. But uh-oh, there's just one life pod. 10 seats. But the thing is, we were all friends. They were all my Jack Crusher. We weren't didn't fight over who should live and who should die. Uh, we, we waited for orders and then finally, some lieutenant comes down, and she just starts pointing. You, you, and you, She's pointing at me. Why? Why me? I'm just some dipshit from Chicago. And now I'm lucky number ten. 11,000 dead. Do you know where your old man was on that day? He was on that Borg cube setting the world on fire! Forget about all that weird shit of the Stargazer. The real Borg? still out there and they have a name for you. Locutus of Borg. The only Borg so deadly they gave him a goddamn name. All right that's enough. No. No.
1: It's all right. I was hoping, hoping against hope that he will survive. I know. Uh, but then, you know, when that happened, that honestly, like, now I'm a, I'm a little bit over it. But at the time, it honestly ruined the episode a little bit for me. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, it did. It, 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 at the time. At the time. Yeah. Right? I mean, now I kind of had time to digest and, you know, it, it was a great episode. Mm-hmm. Like, let's not get around here. Most of these episodes were, were like, perfect. And so, you know... I, I'm, a, I, I, I'm not over it, <laughs> but uh, I am disappointed he had to bite the dust. But, you know, I read some interviews afterwards, and it's like, you know, it made sense. That's the natural way he would have gone, right? Yeah. He basically was on borrowed time since Wolf 359, yeah. right? Why was he chosen to go on that skate pod and live? Maybe it's just for moments like this when the Borg decides to strike back, and now is his chance to make someone else live. Um, And also, I don't know if this is a spoiler, but Terra Malice says that if there's a Star Trek legacy, he'll be back in some way. So I'm Uh happy that that is what...
0: Yeah, you never um, die on Star Trek. Exactly. Knows what, you, know, yeah, yeah. You, know, you could be reborn as an organic it's, android. You exactly. Know?
1: <laughs> he was only dead for like a few seconds and then they cut away and then we never saw right. his body again.
0: Just give him some magic uh, con juice or whatever. Exactly.
1: <laughs> and you know, you know, I mean, at the end of the finale, right, we were shown that he was actually all ready to promote Seven yeah. from the beginning. And so now, now, well, yes, we have to rewatch the season again because it's all in a different context. It's not, yeah. not no more like, oh, Shaw is tired of this new well maybe not new but like new uh, first officer and it's like oh she's being a pain in the butt like uh, and he's just like dealing with him but now now we have to see it as like Shah essentially training her preparing her to be a captain Mm -hmm. and maybe at times being disappointed in the way she was doing things because like you're gonna be like this when you're a captain? Yeah. Like I, I told them to give you a captainship. Like I don't th- this is too much to be a captain. <laughs> like you gotta be less reckless. Right? You gotta see it in that vein now, which means we have to watch the entire season in a new perspective when it comes to seven Shaw. Interactions. Absolutely, absolutely. Right?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean I disliked the character of Shaw as a person, meaning that I don't think I would have been friends with him on that ship. Uh, Absolutely loved the masterful performance. I was waiting for that inflection point in the season where my mind would be completely changed about him, and it was that hologram Mm -hmm. scene, right, Right, where where we found out really how he views Seven. And you're right, we have to go now back and rewatch the season with that in our minds. Um, I was... Shocked and disappointed that he died in the second to last episode But I think it was a good move from a storytelling point of view I I got to watch 9 and 10 back-to-back in the IMAX theater and I uh, did not watch 9 alone uh, Or you know in my house the week before. I saved it, yeah. so I didn't know what was gonna happen It was back-to-back, and so I feel like essentially Shaw dying at the midpoint of that two-part arc really heightened my fear That somebody else else was gonna die, and I feel like I would not have felt that scared, which was a good thing, you know, from a kind of excitement, anticipation, storytelling point of view. If Shaw hadn't died, then you know you think, oh yeah, of course, all the TNG cast is gonna make it out alive and well, which of course they did. But I didn't know that, and I really feared for their lives because Shaw died.
1: I did. Well, it's not even that. It's just like that. Look between Riker and Troy on the bridge, Yeah. right? Oh, and yeah, then, yeah, like, yeah. and the words of like, right? It's been an honor to serve. He's like, no, you yeah. say that before you die, <laughs> don't. And then, like, Picard is saying goodbye, like basically thank you and goodbye to Riker and mm-hmm. Warb, and it's like, please don't, yeah, yeah. <laughs> please don't, and they did. So.
0: All of it, these, yeah, yeah. The, the the building up of the suspense was great. The acting, all these, all oh, all these actors so still, got They've still got it. They still got it.
1: So much, like the build-up of 35 years, mm-hmm. right? Like, you got to see all these moments as the end of 35 years of development and 35 years of, of traveling together, basically. Yeah. And so, you know, when um, Picard said, thank you, I don't know how much it means to me, that's 35 years of saving each other and saving the galaxy and everything. And it's like, oh, I choked up on that, too. Mm-hmm. Like, that was mm-hmm. the other time that I choked up. Yeah.
2: Given what we've learned, it's entirely
1: plausible that some piece of you,
2: some small part, remains compatible with the Hive. Which is how I know that the time has come for us to part ways. I can no longer be your captain. I now have to be a father. Go find the beacon. Will, thank you. I, it means so much to me. You know that I know. Always. Mr. Wolf. There are two turns of phrase that Klingon never admits to knowing defeat and farewell. We should be going.
0: You told me something. Okay, so for context for the listeners, Peter and I see each other at work, not too often, but usually on Fridays, the day after (laughs) the the Picard episode comes out, and we get to debrief things. And so I feel like there was a point midway through the season where you told me something very interesting. You said, it's great but it feels like the TNG cast doing a Deep Space Nine Mm. story because we had the Changelings there. Talk about that feeling that you had and how you felt when they suddenly switched the big bad Mm -hmm. from the Changelings to the Borg.
1: Yeah, so that feeling's gone. (laughs) Yeah, no, no. no, no. Uh, This finale in particular, I mean... The great thing about Finale, really, is to upend your feelings of the entire season. You know, you're writing uh, I don't know the way to say this, but maybe you're writing roller coaster, you're writing some kind of thing, and it's slowly ramping up and ramping up, and you really don't know how high it's going to get at the end. I think this is one of those times, and there's a couple of other shows that I love also where it's like the, the Finale just blew away the, the rest of the show. This is one of those times where the Finale was so big and ended so satisfyingly that essentially removed any possible tiny little complaint i had for the rest of the season even though you know that that wasn't really a complaint because I, I love the change things. i love having them back <laughs> and, and talking about the great oh my god they, they mentioned the great thing we saw a picture of odo right like this was all really good but the ending was tng through and through and not just like the board was back the enterprise d was back but also that feeling of family and a feeling of optimism and happiness and it's a good ending a happy ending. Yeah. They were happy. You know, it wasn't a bittersweet ending. It was, I would say, almost 100%, basically 100% happy ending, except for Shaw. But still, like, <laughs> basically 100% happy ending. And that's what you get for TNG. You yeah. know, DS9 is the ones where you get bittersweet endings, like Cisco leaving. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. No complaints.
0: No complaints. Yeah, I felt like the only thing that was missing from this finale was Data's visor. You know, oh, yeah, in right. the poker, I was I was waiting <laughs> for him to just whip that luminescent, translucent green yellow thing yes. and just put it on his head. That was uh-huh.
1: literally my only. I was narrative. like, oh, there it is. Surprise! I've been hiding it this whole time. <laughs> yeah. Can I ask you a question? Oh, please go for it. So, so okay, both of us got tickets to the IMAX thing. Yeah, and. I couldn't go because of family things, um, which is fine. But you did. Yeah. I want to live vicariously through your description of that event. Okay. Uh, So, yeah, tell us, tell the listeners, how was it sharing the last, well, two episodes, I mean, yeah, I mean, the the penultimate was also new to you, but essentially the last two episodes were the room full of Trekkies.
0: Yeah, room full of Trekkies. It was packed. I got there an hour early, got to the theater, there was no line, and I was like, oh, great, I'm going to be first in line. I go in, they scan my ticket, they give me a free popcorn thing. Thank you, Paramount+, Plus. that's really (laughs) nice of you. And I walk into the theater, and it's packed. Oh, my God. (laughs) I just didn't like the second row and stare up like this with my neck craned because every seat was taken an hour beforehand wow. uh, it was it was amazing and then just sitting there and being enveloped in the trekkiness there yes. were so many people in cosplay <laughs> while we were waiting there for an hour they would do like little trivia games nice. on the screen and oh, everybody yeah, instantly everybody <laughs> pointed out the right you know answer it was it was insane and then when the thing started that surround sound of laughter at the jokes, because the oh, yeah. finale was so funny. I yeah. mean, like going back to episode nine when Picard said the thing I missed the most <laughs> was the carpeted floors. <laughs> I was like, yes, this is so good. Uh, and then Worf snoring in the chair yes. afterwards. Oh, so great. And then the gasps, the cheers. One of the things that I um, I never experienced before the very first J.J. Abrams movie, going to watch that in theaters. We're gonna hold Whoa. for the helicopter. <laughs> Lemon DZ, <laughs> what are you going to do? I don't know who that was. Maybe maybe Biden or something <laughs> that just flew over us. One of the things that the movie-going experience that I just remember the most from the 2009 movie was when the Enterprise first comes up onto screen and it's like the introduction of a starship majestic music in the background and everybody claps it's a starship but everybody's clapping like it is the reintroduction of like a character that we've all loved and missed for so long and you know the beautiful scene where uh, troy is getting this empathic message from Riker. i know where he is and then the enterprise swoops in and saves the day and picard and jack and Riker and Worf, they all stare up, and there it is, the yeah. big Enterprise D. Once again, yeah. we all just clapped. We just cheered. It was <laughs> it was so good. Nice. Um, I loved it. And um, seeing okay, seeing the Enterprise F on the big screen mm. at Frontier, Day, yeah, Frontier uh, Day, just doing that majestic kind of arc around space dock, the fireworks in the background, I actually really love that ship. Can, can I be really honest? <laughs> I'll be really honest. That... Enterprise F design is my favorite enterprise design wow. besides the refit A. The refit, Why? the free yeah, right, refit Yeah, t- you can't touch, you can't touch that one. <laughs> Right, but after that is the Enterprise F. I love that mm. ship so much. Wow, interesting. But, okay, but but then seeing the D again, so much nostalgia, yeah. so great. To see it in action, that was one of the things that I never expected them to do right. uh, because it crashed yeah. on Veridian 3 It's gone, <laughs> like we truckies know that. We yeah. were all sad when it happened. And for them to pull that back out, for them to switch from the changelings right back to the Borg, right. didn't see that because borg was so season
1: two yeah and, then they brought and, it season, back. One. and season one
0: right? <laughs> and all of that just together packed in that theater yeah. experiencing that with other people was incredible <laughs>
1: <laughs> wait okay so let me ask you like a specific moment like at what point did you think that the, the enterprise D was coming like did it actually take you to seeing it before you think oh or did you think like oh maybe they're gonna are they gonna do the the Enterprise D on this?
0: No, no, I didn't. I didn't expect it at all. It so you was, didn't know what
1: was in Hangar 12? I didn't
0: know what was in Hangar twelve. It was just like, really? <laughs> are you kidding? But but it felt so right. It yeah. was weird. It was it was like the most unexpected thing, but it didn't feel
1: forced. Right. I, yeah. I, I the think saucer was fine. Yeah. Well, sort of. But I mean, it was it was in one piece. <laughs> yeah. Sort of. And I mean, Jordy
0: is Jordy. He's <laughs> yeah. the, the best engineer in the fleet. Of course, he can do it. Yeah. Um, so that didn't. Bother me. I, I loved I loved the season so much. Yeah. I loved the finale a lot. It honestly gave me the creeps to see the younger bridge officers mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you know, become borgified. Yeah. Um yeah. it made me feel like oh my God, what if like suddenly all of the undergrads and grad students who <laughs> were mentoring turned against us, you know, like that was, <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> never made me feel so good to be so old yes. and not be <laughs> under twenty five. That's true. <laughs> it's- God, I feel yeah. I feel young. And then, <laughs> who's the Admiral that got shot on the bridge of the Enterprise? Was so that Admiral? Uh, Shelby. Shelby. That was Shelby. Yeah, Shelby. Shelby, Shelby, right? Shelby. When Shelby got shot, I was just like, oh my God. And I thought immediately of Admiral Janeway. Yeah. And like all the other people, legacy characters who've got to be out there yeah. in those ships. Like, yeah. what's happening to them? I, I felt, know. I was so traumatized in, a, in the best possible way yeah. because, you know, it's supposed to be thrilling. Yeah.
1: But, um, man. But they're okay. They're okay. And also, the fact that Janeway has been mentioned so much, she's probably, like, top two or something in the Federation these days. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Speaking of the bridge officers, though, I I did want to ask you about, um, you've been on this podcast in previous episodes talking about Discovery Mm -hmm. and sort of the missed opportunities with the bridge officers from Star Trek Discovery. And I feel like you think they did a better job with the bridge officers here. Tell me about that.
1: They did a monumentally better job. I think the main point in Picard is that they treated them as they're just professionals. They're doing their jobs, right? They're receiving commands, they're carrying out their orders, but slowly letting out their personality here and there, right? They're little moments. The problem with Discovery is that I think they started out like that, but then they just gave them really big emotional moments that didn't seem deserved, Mm. right? Like, who are you to be so... like? taking like the spotlight right now you're just the pilot or whatever (laughs) right like like i don't know your backstory i don't know anything about you but suddenly you're like really angry or really really sad it's like what okay but you know they took it easy i guess they took it easy like they had them mostly stay about the same right except for when they got borgified but Mm -hmm. um they mostly were doing their jobs and then of course when they got into really you know they were almost killed they let out fear, they let out like nervousness. But you saw, for example, when they were on the bridge and Vadik was like pointing uh, her pistol at everybody, they let out those little moments of vulnerability. And that's what you expect to see for officers, right? Like, their life's gonna be in danger all the time from being in Starfleet, but you know, you still have to know your training and more or less hold it together until the moment that you're pretty sure you're going to die. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is exactly what we saw with uh, Esmar, for example, right? I, I, I love her character. She was the height of professional the entire time until that moment where she thought she was going to get hit, shot in the back of the head. And then mm-hmm. she was like super scared as she would be, as anyone would be at that moment. So that, I love that character moment. Mm-hmm. As horrible mm-hmm. as it was. Mm-hmm. But that, you know, that was, I think, a really good performance in writing. Yeah, this is the right way to develop sort of your, your kind of nondescript bridge person. Um, but really, going forward, if they do a Star Trek Legacy, yeah. then I hope they stay. I hope they stay around and get developed more in a normal you know, fashion.
0: Star Trek Legacy.
1: Yes, please. So,
0: yes, please. If you had to put a number to it, you know, in terms of percentage that you think it will happen, oh. you know, what, do you, what would you say right now?
1: <sighs> in this economy?
0: <laughs>
1: Gosh. Um... I don't know i feel like you know hopefully they're seeing the fan response they're seeing that sartre picard is getting into like top 10 streaming shows or whatever and that there are at least conversations happening right percentage of happening i'd say five percent i mean i don't think it's a huge percent just because they're going ahead with the academy show which you know we can talk about some other time Mm -hmm. they're going ahead with movies which i think is really nice I think my biggest fear is not that they don't do Legacy is that they do a movie of Legacy because I really want a series. Mhm. You know, Section 31, I think fits a movie really well or mini series, I think really well. Yeah. As like a character focus on Giorgio, mm-hmm. right? I think that'd be really cool. But a Legacy show that really focuses on the state of Starfleet, the Federation, the Alpha Beta Quadrants in the 25th century, that is a series. Yeah. You know, that's a huge playground. They can fill a whole series on. And so I hope Yeah, they don't do it, or they just do it. Do a whole series, like Strange New Worlds, Mm -hmm. right? Spin-off, look at the fan response, do it that way. But I hope they do it. I really hope they do it, because I think what Terry Malice and crew showed us is that they... I mean, I would say a good number of the writers of current Star Trek get Star Trek. I think that's not like... I'm not saying like Terry Malice is the only one who gets Star Trek. Mm -hmm. It's all in the little details, though. I think of all the people, he... And his crew has put in the most caring and details to everything. What I would be interested in seeing, though, is their work outside of TNG homages, right? Oh, I mean, like, yeah. this, this season was great mm-hmm. for TNG characters that developing them. The writing, I think, has been stellar in terms of the dialogue. The plot advance is really good. But don't forget, it's built upon the backbone of the original TNG characters right. and, like, decades of development since then. What if you start off with essentially new characters? Can they be as skillful and as impactful?
0: Anything that left you feeling unsatisfied about Star Trek Picard as a whole or this season in particular?
1: It's over.
0: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I understand. Yeah. I think uh,
1: I was really looking forward to every, every episode, every week, the last 10 weeks. Mm-hmm. I will say this finale, I mean, that last you know, 15, 20 minutes where they were wrapping things up mm-hmm. was masterful. I am satisfied. In terms of the story of the 10 episodes this season, I am satisfied. Mm-hmm. It's as close to a perfect season of Star Trek as I've ever seen ever okay so like it's easily top three seasons may even be top one mm-hmm. i'll need time to, to process <laughs> right gotta think back like ah yes nice season three is season six and, and some pretty good too obviously tos season one is like the classic age classic star trek stories and of course you know various tng seasons they their really good stuff but this was one big story where it just kept the momentum just kept building and building mm-hmm. um old characters were brought back in a good way not just as like a token thing and so this is as close to a perfect season as I can think of. It's really hard. To th- I mean, yeah, it's really hard to think of anything. So um,
0: since 2017, this is the best Star Trek has ever been. Yes. Me
1: too. Yes. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is yes. <laughs> yes. If you put it that way, it's the top of the the new Trek. Um, Strange New World season one, I think, is second. Prodigy season one, for me, would be third or second. Like those two would swap off, and and so, yeah.
0: And, and do you think that's just the case for people like us who are, you know, grew up with Star Trek, we have a history with the show. Yeah. Or do you think people who are new to the show, watching mm. Picard and the rest of the Star Trek stuff, would also feel this way about season three of Picard?
1: I think, yeah, having the history definitely helps. I mean, I will say that I was not a religious TNG fan. I mean, I recognize the greatness of TNG. And I think every time I watch an episode, I always come off like, oh, this is so great. But I, I was a Voyager person. Mm-hmm. You know, I started off track with Voyager. My favorite track is DS9 because I, I love arc storytelling, and I like really like the nuances in the DS9 characters. And I watched all of Enterprise, and I enjoy like season three and four in particular. And so TNG was always this like more classic trek, more like cerebral, you know, standalone story trek. But even with that kind of background, the nostalgia hit. Yeah, really hard. And but also, I recognize like the dialogue was so good, the performances were so good. I thought the writing was good, but it's hard to imagine what someone who never watched TNG would see in it because it's it's impossible to decouple my mind in that way, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's hard for me to imagine what someone who grew up on TNG, who eat, drink, and sleep these characters, yeah, saw. You know, for them, it might have been even more intense, right? Uh, which I envy, envy, frankly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. I wish I had that, but you know, I absolutely enjoyed for what I saw. I mean, it was on the top ten streaming. So you gotta (laughs) mean something, right? Yeah, it's gotta
0: be good. Yeah. Any final thoughts, maybe something that you loved that you didn't get to mention today before we go?
1: Well, the first shot with the the TNG opening nebula thing, and Mm -hmm. then immediately diving into Pavel Chekhov's son, Anton. Oh oh my god, yes. (laughs) See, the thing is, you know, the moment I saw that, I was like, I, I should have been in theater for this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Like, imagine the gasp, the screams yes. at that, right? Oh, my God. Um, so that was amazing. And in general, I just think, you know, I hope Terry Malice and his crew gets to do Star Trek Legacy uh, and, and check up on all these old characters because they still got a lot of mileage left. And I think if one day they do a Voyager cast reunion, uh, yes. it will it will be for me what this was for, like, diehard, diehard, really diehard TNG fans for me. Because to me, Voyager was my Trek family. And so, fingers crossed. Yeah. I hope one day, you know, we get to see Emerald maybe Commander-in-Chief Catherine Janeway in all uh-huh. her glory. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. I hope, I hope.
0: <laughs> oh, definitely, definitely. And um, I, I guess as planetary scientists, we, we should just quickly oh, touch yeah. upon Jupiter Jupiter. <laughs> well, we Jupiter it was beautiful maybe yeah. they use some Junocam images for, for that that exactly. would be really wonderful yeah yeah we should tell our astronomer friends to maybe check out the red spot one more time <laughs> just in case there's no
1: like uh, black and green squares <laughs> you know Junocam it's, uh, it's 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 pretty good at picking up details <laughs> yeah yeah well now we know
0: where all the missing ammonia is I oh, guess so there it is <laughs> there you go
1: it needed that to regenerate the queen <laughs>
0: Okay, thank you so much again, Peter, for being on Strange New Worlds. Always a pleasure. It's so much fun to talk to you. That was Dr. Peter Gao on the first major exoplanet results from JWST and the Star Trek Picard series finale. You can follow Peter on Twitter at PlanetaryGao, myself at m i q u a i, and this show at Science of Trek. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you enjoyed today's episode, and tell your friends about us, too. Next time on Strange New Worlds, NASA JPL astrobiologist Dr. Scott Pearl will join us to talk about the science of biosignatures. Grab your tricorders, because we're about to go hunting for life. Until then, see you out there. Your favorite captain? I'm sorry to lead with such a difficult
1: question. <laughs> Actually, it's really simple. My captain is Captain Janeway like, forever and always. Really, really? Oh yeah. Tell me why. As we found out in the latest, ep- the last episode of Picard, she literally wiped out the Borg Collective, the entire thing.
0: Hey. to a meeting where I talk about exoplanets with people. Which yeah. chocolate did you take or do you want?
1: Uh, you can take both of you. Oh, you I sure? actually took yeah, I took four and I already ate two. <laughs> so.
0: Thank you, Anjali, for the chocolate.